You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 163. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Ashley Winstead, who is an academic-turned-novelist with a PhD in contemporary American literature. Ashley lives in Houston, Texas, and her debut novel is the psychological thriller In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife. Before we get to the interview, a quick word about Masterclass, offering online courses created for students of all skill levels with instructors that are the best in the world including 18 courses on writing, including learning how to write best-selling thrillers, crime fiction and mysteries from James Patterson, Dan Brown, David Baldacci, and Walter Mosley. Some of the other amazing and legendary instructors teaching uh, courses about writing include David Mamet, Malcolm Galdwell, Margaret Atwood, R.L. Stein, Neil Gaiman, Salman Rushdie, and Shonda Rhimes, uh, just to name a few of them. Uh, so go check out uh, thrillingreads.com forward slash on writing to check out the uh, masterclass courses focused on writing. And if you sign up via that link, you'll not only have great access to some amazing instructors, but you'll be supporting the podcast. So that's thrillingreads.com forward slash on writing. Okay, here is the latest interview with Ashley Winstead. Hey, everybody. This is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast today, I have Ashley Winstead, debut novel, a psychological thriller, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife. That is such a cool title. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, great. Thank you. And so, wow, a PhD in contemporary American literature. Did you always wanted to be a fiction writer when you began your studies? Is that was, was that, Has that always been in the back of your head? Oh, yeah. it. Um, I actually describe it as like I've wanted to be a fiction writer my whole life. Um, but I was kind of running from it as, as a young adult. And so part of part of like tiptoeing closer to writing fiction was getting my PhD and studying it. Um, but I'm I'm here now. Which is <laughs> yeah, that's smart. So you kind of like always you're studying it. So you kind of were preparing for it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so what, what was what, what was the deciding the deciding factor for you to finally sit down and write that novel? Oh, I honestly had to get, you know, find a way through my crippling self-doubt. Um, <laughs> this is just total honesty. I, I pretty much had to tell myself. So I, I finished my PhD. And, and of course, part of that process is writing essentially a book length um, like project, your dissertation. And so I developed some great work habits of getting up early and grinding writing all day and just being really productive. So when I wrapped up my PhD, I thought to myself, you have just gone through like, you know, a, a really hard thing. Getting your PhD is, isn't easy. And um, what if, and you learn some good work habits, what if you actually applied, you know, those work habits to writing the thing that you really in your heart of hearts want to write, which is a novel? Um, and what if you didn't show anyone ever and you just did it for pleasure? <laughs> so I had to really talk myself <laughs> into into starting. That's funny too, because yeah, I, I can just imagine because you have to like defend your work. And I mean, that's like, like a whole developmental edit kind of a thing. <laughs> and some, Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, I will say it prepared me well for the, <laughs> for the world of like rejection and critique that you're subject to as a, as a fiction writer as well, because yeah, that is some grueling critique. 
Yeah, you really need a thick skin for this business, right? <laughs> oh, one thousand percent. And so, uh, was just out of curiosity, that first book that you sat down to write, did you ever publish it? Is that is that this, is this this one? No, I didn't publish that one. It is currently <laughs> shelved. You know, everyone needs their learning book or oh, yeah. a few learning books or you know whatever it is. Um, but I will say to credit that book. I, I spent a few years learning how to write while writing it. Um, I got into pitch wars with that book and I got my agent with that book. Um, so it, it did a lot of great things for me. It just has not seen the light of day and maybe never will. Yeah, well, that's great though. Like really, it, it got you. It got you on the right path. So that's that's cool. It was just sitting away to never <laughs> never be seen. Yes, I mean, I feel I do feel a little bit like I catfished my agent though because <laughs> it's a my first book was a contemporary YA fantasy. Um, so I wrote that, and she she signed me. She really liked that. Um, gave me notes, and I was like, you know. What if instead of doing all the the revisions on this book I've been working on for years, I just wrote a psychological thriller and tried something new? Um, so I went in this completely different direction, but luckily she was game for it. Um, and I actually keep doing that to her, switching up <laughs> genres. So, oh yeah, see, so you like to so you write in thrillers, and you write you like to write YA also, so you write in different genres too. How's that switching back and forth between different genres? Is it challenging or? You know, I'm a Gemini, so apparently I have multiple people. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I'm a Gemini as well. <laughs> living inside me, so it works out really well. I actually write romance as well. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. It, it's very satisfying, I, I find, to switch between genres. And I kind of drag a little bit of each other genre into whatever I'm writing. And so can you tell us a little bit about the about this book, about, the, uh, about um, In My Dreams I Hold a Knife? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So what's it about? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, it's a psychological thriller, and I say also mixed with the drama and mixed with the romance, um, about six friends who go back to college for their 10-year college reunion. And the thing about these friends is that their senior year, um, one of their one of the, uh, one of the friend group is a girl named Heather Shelby, and she was found brutally murdered. Um, and another one of their friend group was accused at the time, but never convicted of the crime. So this really terrible thing has happened, um, an unsolved murder their senior year. And now they're back 10 years later. They were really popular in college, and they've all done really um, amazing things. And they all have these different agendas for the reunion weekend. Um, but I would, <laughs> none are really as ambitious as our main character, Jessica Millers, who is going back um, to college for this reunion, absolutely obsessed and determined to prove to everyone that she's become this really successful, amazing person in a lot of ways, like the person that Heather Shelby, the girl who was killed, who's kind of the golden girl, that she's she's become that kind of girl um, because she, people didn't really pay attention to her as much as her friends in college. So she has this real chip on her shoulder. She's there to prove herself. Unfortunately for her and for all of the other friends, someone else has a very different plan for the weekend and is going to use this opportunity when all the friends are back together um, in one place and in their old stomping grounds, no less, to peel back the layers uh, of artifice, 
uncover all of their secrets and find out who really killed Heather and why. Wow, that's awesome. And is that, that's coming up uh, August 3rd, right? Yep, August 3rd. Okay, yeah. So by the time this podcast uh, this airs, uh, it'll be uh, available. So people can go check that out. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> yes, fantastic. Please yeah. do. And so it seems psychological thrillers have been getting so much popularity in the last few years. I mean, I know it's been a genre that's been around for a long time, but it seems like so popular the last few years. Why do you think readers are liking that so much? And and what drew you to that genre? Ooh, such good questions. Um, I'll start with what drew me to the genre, because maybe that's also what why readers are, are gravitating toward it. So I am really fascinated by people who um, there's something kind of tragic to them. Like they're, they're trying so hard um, and, that's, uh, and yet, you know, they, they aren't kind of getting this thing that they want or there's their, their own worst enemies. Um, I think in psychological thrillers, something you see a lot, which is really endlessly fascinating to me, at least, and, and I think maybe other readers, is that sometimes like the most chilling antagonist is you, yourself, and your own brain. And I think you see that a lot in psychological thrillers with unreliable narrators, with complicit narrators, um, with main focalization characters that uh, for a while seem like maybe they're like investigating a crime or looking for the truth about something, but that you slowly start to see the ways that they themselves are, you know, guilty and complicit. So I love that. And I will also say something that just the reason I started writing this book was I um, really wanted to explore failure and man, that failure to me is like something obviously that happens to everyone, something that happens to writers Mm. a lot and and creative people, but it's something that is still so uncomfortable to talk about. I even feel like a a little flutter in my stomach talking about it now. Um, But I, at the time that I started writing in my dreams, I hold a knife. I was going, I was like deep in a period where I'd experienced really significant professional failure and I was in a dark place. I was thinking that, you know, this dream of, of being a writer that I'd been working on for years, but really had wanted my whole life was just actually never going to happen. And so instead of trying to like repress those feelings and push them down, which is what I probably normally do, I kind of allowed myself to lean into them and imagine a character who didn't repress her anxiety around failure, but instead like just refuse to accept failure and would go to any lengths not to fail. And so that was kind of the seeds of my my main character, Jessica. And so I think that something that's so attractive about psychological thrillers is that you get to go to dark places with the characters, you know, places that you know you can't go to <laughs> um, probably in real life, but you get to kind of experience it through them. Also, but I, what I also like about those psychological thrillers is it's it's uh, like a normal person <laughs> versus like a super cop or a you know spy or something. That's always kind of an interesting uh, angle to them as well. 
Yeah, I love that. That you're you're in the head of a normal person. This could <laughs> yeah. be you. They they are subject to all the same like foibles. But yeah, there's something very very deeply relatable to that. And were you a fan of the genre before you decided to to try to write one one of these? I was, but I will say that I have taken it upon myself to school myself since I have started writing multiple psychological thrillers now. I've taken it upon myself to do like a deep dive, especially into other psychological thrillers that are being published this year and the previous years. So while I would say, yes, uh, I was a fan I've become much more literate um, <laughs> in the genre, much more knowledgeable in the past year or so. Do you find like the your education, um, does it help you like read a novel like from a kind of like a business academic type <laughs> way or? I can't stop reading. It's like a thing I can't turn off, the <laughs> academic like framing. And sometimes I feel like I am like the last person you actually want to invite to your book club because <laughs> It's gonna, you know, be like talking about their experiences with the book. And I want to talk about like, you know, ideological structures in the book and all the stuff that everyone's like, you know what? Okay. <laughs> like we get it. You're a PhD, you studied books, like go away. Let's let's actually talk about like the art <laughs> part of this. Uh, that's gonna be coming really handy though for like the, the actual craft and the writing part of it too. So that's kind of never thought about that before. <laughs> You know, sometimes it does, but sometimes I've actually found that I can get in my own way by getting in my head too much mm. about what I want a book I'm writing to mean instead of just letting it be a story and kind of figuring it figuring it out. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Yeah, but no, it actually does. When the second okay. you said it, I'm like, I can see that. Yeah, <laughs> like getting too much into the into the academic part of it, not just sitting back and just writing it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so do you, what is your writing process? I'm curious, do you like, do you outline or do you just kind of just, what is it, a seat of your pants? So what's your process like? Oh no, I'm a meticulous outliner. <laughs> I figured as you as can much. tell, <laughs> a, a theme here is overthinking, clearly. Um, so uh, to no one's surprise, I am a meticulous plotter, a meticulous outliner. I actually write a book out in its entirety, chapter by chapter, um, in my outline before I ever start actually like writing it as a book. So I do that for two reasons. One, because I really need a roadmap. Um, I need to know where I'm going in order to feel like kind of free to, to be creative. And the other thing is that um, once again, I need to always trick myself into doing things. So I'm like, oh, you basically wrote a book already. It's just, you know, in the form of a 40 page outline, all you need to do is just flesh it out a little <laughs> bit longer. And so I trick myself into sitting down in front of the computer every day to, to just flesh it out. Cause it feels like I'm so close. I like that. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I was just curious too. I've seen your book described as like a millennial thriller, and so I was kind of uh, curious about that because I hadn't uh, not familiar with that before. So, is that in the millennial market? Are, are millennial readers enjoying crime fiction? Do you have to change the stories up a little bit now with the changes that we've been going through these last few years? I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, I love that question, and I've been thinking a lot about it. The reason that we describe in my dreams, I hold a knife as a millennial thriller 
is because it takes place during like the 2005 to 2009, like at the, or, or the, sorry, it's a past and present dual timeline and the past when the, the friends were in college is between 2005 and 2009. So that is, you know, at, was at the height of the recession. So these f- six friends who are in college, who are at this really elite Southern university um, called Duquette University, um, it's, it's this really competitive atmosphere and environment, both socially, you know, with Greek life, and also academically. Um, so there's all of this competition that is just endemic and natural to their lives. And everyone is competing with each other for jobs and popularity and fellowships and so on. And then the recession hits as the kind of background to the story. And it, it really turns the screw tighter and it, it dials up the tension. And so, and the stakes of all of these competitions therein. And so this is obviously like, this is something that I experienced because I graduated from uh, college in 2008, kind of in in the midst of the the recession and can recall feeling existential dread about like all the paths for the future I'd imagined kind of being wiped off the plate had a ton of friends who had jobs and then lost them before they graduated because everything was just topsy-turvy and a mess. And so, and, you know, there's been a lot written about like millennials as a burnout generation because, you know, people smarter than I, scholars who study these things, um, you know, have made a lot about the habits that millennials learned particularly those who graduated during this time of like complete economic uncertainty, you know, learning about the fact that, you know, you're always, nothing is ever certain or secure. You always have to fight for your place. Um, You you can never rest easy. And so a lot of those feelings really imbue the book and are are part of the book. Um, And so that's kind of why we're calling it a millennial thriller. One other thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, this I'm I'm seeing a lot, obviously, just because this is the natural way of things, but a lot of thrillers being published with millennial characters, um, oftentimes written by millennial aged writers. And it's really interesting to me to notice thematic um, like patterns across these thrillers. So I'm thinking of a book with a really similar premise to In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, um, that, but it was published earlier called um, The Girls Are All So Nice Here by Lori Elizabeth Flynn. Um, I'm thinking of The Divines by Ellie Eaton, which was published earlier this year, um, For the Best by Vanessa Lilly. And so all, all of these books are really interested in complicity, how their main characters are complicit in like institutional and ideological violence, which I think is really fascinating because ostensibly millennials have, are, are, you know, in a very, a very aware generation, at least millennials have performed like awareness of social injustice really vocally, like on social media. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to see writers 
a kind of generation, if you will, of writers um, kind of wrestling with what complicity looks like now. Um, and so, like I said, I don't invite me to your book club. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was a ramble. Sorry about that. No, no, that's very, that's fascinating too. Cause I, I didn't, I never thought about that too. Cause like, you know, I'm a Gen X person. So, or from that generation. So if I was to write a book about a 30 year old now, I'd be writing it from my head and, but you really should be thinking about, you know, <laughs> like what the current generation is like. So it's kind of interesting things. I think writers should need to keep in, in, in their head if they're going to tackle a novel. <laughs> Oh yeah. Whenever I think about going back to write YA, I have to remind myself <laughs> how far removed I am from, from teenagers because yeah, I would approach it with my millennial brain of like what that experience was when I experienced it, but it's, it's like, you know, light years away. <laughs> now. Yeah, I think it, I think it's so interesting too, because now I've been reading articles about Gen Z and millennials are starting to go at, go at each other, kind of like, you know, the Gen X and the millennials. <laughs> so it's like, oh, it just keeps repeating itself, I guess. <laughs> it just keeps repeating. Yep. And it will, and it will. Yeah, <laughs> for all time. always has. <laughs> the, you know, that's kind of funny. Um, so I, I was kind of curious too now about your research process. So uh, I always like to ask this about my guests. Uh, do you do a lot of research before you start writing these books? And I'm Again, I'm assuming from your academic background what the answer is, but <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, you can tell already that. Yeah, I love um, doing research, and part of it is just a deep fascination to know things. Um, but the other half of it is just like deep sense of like I need things to be accurate. <laughs> so yeah. I'm gonna spend an hour, you know, researching if this particular flower blooms in this particular region at this particular time of year blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm going to do all of that. But for In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, I actually would say that it is one of my least researched books insofar as I, I've written other books where I just did such heavy research. Like the thriller I have coming out after In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, um, I just did so much research for in my dreams, I hold a knife. I relied a little bit more on my lived experience um, than I have in other books. Um, I, of course, like did a lot of research to make sure that I wasn't unique in my lived experience. And, you know, some of the things that I would describe were going to resonate with other people. Um, but one of the cool things that I did slash eye-opening things was um, when I was in college, this, this thing, I'm, I'm sure listeners will be familiar with it, but it's called, it was called, it was a college message board called Juicy Campus. And I think Juicy Campus was the first sort of one of these college message boards. Um, it was but a lot popped up after Juicy Campus was like banned from almost every college in this kind of wave once people figured out what was going on. But it was essentially a message board for one for each college that all lived on the, the Juicy Campus site. And it was you posted anonymously about your your peers and what was going on on campus. And so it really created this um contribute to a very toxic environment, as you can imagine, like the things that people would say on these message boards about other people were truly awful at times. Um, 
And I, it, Juicy Campus pops up a little bit in the book, not too much, but I actually used the Wayback Machine, which is this, um, you know, internet archive that kind of archives past websites. It's very cool. It's a very cool research tool for, for novelists and like anyone interested. But I went back on old Juicy Campus message boards just to kind of get a feel for um, college students back in 2009. And it was just quite eye-opening to remember how dialed up the emotions of everything was, you know, like everything felt so life and life or death, high stakes. And that really kind of came across in these message boards. Um, so it was great in that it reassured me like, yep, I am accurately <laughs> describing um, the the college experience that I remember. But also I was like, Phew, I am so glad that I'm not there anymore. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah. With all the stuff now on social media, <laughs> it'd be hard to, to like just be a, a, a college student without, you know, like everything could be right out there. And then millions of people might, might, <laughs> might get in your head. Oh my gosh. Kind of crazy. My, my freshman year is when Facebook first launched. And I actually still like remember someone yelling at me across campus, like, Oh, I'll look you up on Facebook (laughs) and thinking like, what's that? (laughs) Like going back to my desk, my old dinosaur desktop and, and looking it up. You know, so I wanted to ask it too, because you mentioned before about the dual timelines now. So how do you keep that? How do you keep that straight when you're in your when you're putting it together? I'm kind of curious about that process. <laughs> yeah, so I once again just very very meticulous um, writing everything down. You know, like this writing everything that's going to happen in the past and the past chapter here and creating these timelines. I also so I have a a number of different plots that are kind of working together plot lines. Uh, subplots and, and kind of weaving together in the book. And I color coded each one <laughs> um, so that I could see when I at a quick glance in my spreadsheets and my outlines that everything was like kind of consistently, I was visiting each of the subplots consistently. They were all weaving together in a pleasing way. Um, but when I, I really wanted to tell a story in a dual timeline um, because I, I, for my main character, Jessica, you know, she's 32 at the, in, in the present time of the book. Um, and, but as she says really early on in an early chapter for her, the past is still alive. It's like something she just can't let go of. The reason she can't let go of it is like, there are many reasons and you'll find out through the book, um, some good, some bad, but the past is very much alive for her. And so I wanted to make it almost literal, um, a, a kind of literal experience of the past being alive for the reader. And, and so that's why I wanted to go back and forth. Um, and I was also determined. So my, I love dual timeline books. My one gripe with some dual timeline books is that you'll learn something, you know, whether it's in the past or the present, and then you'll jump to, you know, the, the alternate past or present, and you'll kind of just like revisit that or talk about the implications. And I really wanted to um, create this experience where 
you're moving really quickly through the past and the present. And so each, it, almost in every chapter, you're kind of learning something new. And so there's no, no like real revisiting. It's like, even if you're going into the past, you're going to learn something new that sheds new light on the present, but the present isn't going to stop to wait around to talk about it. It's kind of move on. Um, so that, that was only possible through all my spreadsheets. So spreadsheets, and what do you use to actually write the stories? Is that Word? Just Word. Okay. I am a simple, simple creature. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing yeah. fancy. Uh-huh. And so I was kind of curious to know, um, with this crazy year with the pandemic and everything, uh, what, are you, what are you planning to do for future books? Are you going to address it? Are you going to ignore it? Alternative universe? <laughs> what are your plans on Oh, 1000% ignoring the pandemic in future books. Like (laughs) just not, uh, yeah, that is just, I'm so curious to know what other, what other folks are going to do, but I am just going to, uh, yeah, act like it never happened. Well, I've, I've been asking this question now for the past year for like, I think probably now about, I don't know, 23 times and most everybody's ignoring it. So I think it's good. good. I think we're all sick of it. So (laughs) Good. As long as we're all on the same page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. The memo's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so what are you, uh, you, you mentioned you're working on another book now. Can you, any uh, tidbits or any sneak peeks you can give us on that one? What's it about or when's it coming out? Yeah. So I actually have two books coming out next year in 2022. Um, one's a romance and one is a thriller my my so I'll tell you about the thriller it's coming out um in August 2022 so like almost a year exactly after in my dreams I hold a knife and it is a cult revenge thriller um it kind of loosely inspired by the Sarah Lawrence sex cult story not sure if if a ton of people know about this story but um and the Nexium cult um, oh, yeah, I know that one. I'm not familiar with yeah. Sarah Lawrence, but yeah, the Nexium is not on the news all the time. <laughs> yes, the Nexium cult, so well known. There's already a ton of documentaries and, and a ton of interesting things being written about it. But the Sarah Lawrence cult, it was like the the outlet, the cut, I think broke the story or at least did like the major deep dive into it. But in a nutshell, um, a student's father moved into her suite with her and her suite mates at Sarah Lawrence and eventually over years kind of indoctrinated um, his daughter's friends into essentially a cult. And it was um, very disturbing the things that he taught them, um, the things that he had them do for him. Um, He extorted a lot of money from their parents and this went on for years and years And it's so fascinating. I mean, it's terrible. It's also so fascinating to me that A, it was allowed to go on for so long and B, that more people don't know about it because the story is is wild. Um, And so thinking about Nexium and this kind of pseudo cult um, at Sarah Lawrence really got me thinking, you know, how from the perspective of the survivors of these cults, how do you 
let, you know, how do you come to be in a place where you're accepting someone else's authority and doing things that you probably previously would never have dreamed you'd ever do? And what does that process look like of submitting um, to someone else? And is there even any transgressive pleasure in it? I mean, there has to be some attraction. And so I was just really interested in um, telling a story from the perspective of someone who had been in a cult like this and was now on the outside and kind of running up against it again. Um, so I, I am really excited about that book. Um, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds fascinating. I, I've always been obsessed with cults too for a long time. So I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I love reading about cults. Yeah. And so, uh, I always like to ask my guests before uh, kind of like the final question before I let you go is I have aspiring writers that listen to this podcast. Any advice for them? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, so much. Um, first, you are going to like, no matter how good you are, how talented you are, you are going to get knocked on your ass um, over and over again do not do what I did and let it stop you from writing or take you to dark places. I mean, let yourself feel what you're going to feel, but the difference between a successful writer and an unsuccessful writer isn't talent. It's just persistence. So just keep going. Oh, I love that. That's great advice. <laughs> Where can the, the, our, our listeners uh, find you? What's your uh, website? Oh yeah. It's ashleywinstead.com. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at Ashley Winstead. Okay, great, Ashley. And so uh, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife will be out August 3rd. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Alan. I had a blast. Thank you for listening to Meet the Thriller Author. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of your favorite writers of mysteries and thrillers. Or if this episode's guest is new to you, I hope you give their books a chance. Helping listeners discover new authors and books is one of the coolest outcomes of doing this podcast. As always, you can head over to thrillerauthors.com to sign up to my Thrilling Reads email list. That way you won't miss out on any great deals in thriller and mystery books. You can also check out all the links and resources in the show notes for this episode over at thrillerauthors.com. And also please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to this show. If you have done that already, I thank you. I really do appreciate your support. For my other links to my author website, social media haunts, and more uh, check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links all my links will be uh, on that uh, page so that's it for this episode uh, see you next time and stay safe out there